Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is August 2nd, 2023, and I'm very pleased to welcome to this podcast journalist, filmmaker, and author Anthony Lowenstein. Uh, Anthony, who is based in East Jerusalem from 2016 to 2020, he has written for The Guardian, The New York Times, The New York Review of Books, and many others. He's written several books. I've asked him to join us today to discuss his latest book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, published by Verso Books in May 2023. And I will include a link to the book in the show notes. I will also add that I have the book. I've read the book. Um, it is compelling. It is also short um, compared to a lot of people who use a lot of extra words to say what they want. Um, so people really have no excuse not to read it. So welcome, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Uh, and Anthony is joining us from across the world. It's, I think, 11 o'clock his time, 11 p.m. So thank you for that as well. He is in Australia. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so Anthony, just to start us off, I, I gave a tiny bit of bio information mm. for you. Can you talk a little bit more about yourself, introduce yourself to listeners? I can. So I was born in 1974 in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Jewish, although I call myself these days an atheist Jew, so I'm not, I don't practice my faith. I grew up in a fairly typical Jewish home. It was pretty liberal, which I guess in the Australian context and for American or overseas listeners would mean Israel was not the centre of our lives by any means, but Israel was certainly something that you supported because you were Jewish. This is what you did. Pretty pretty normal Jewish upbringing. My family, most of them were killed in the Holocaust, tragically in mostly, well, they mostly came from Germany and Austria, the ones who got out in 39 you know, were spread around the world, Australia, Canada, the US, etc. And I guess when I was growing up, the issue of Israel was always something that made me feel uncomfortable. What I mean by that is that there were was always this, and this, of course, was showing my age before the age of the internet. And I think the internet has radically changed this conversation, in my view, generally for the better. We can talk about that if you want. But in general, I think there was willful ignorance and willful blindness and this is not to excuse people's awfulness or racism towards palestinians not at all but there was often just ignorance about the occupation about israel what israel was doing i remember i remember often at sabbath meals with my family hearing that yes arafat who was then the leader of the palestinians you know was basically hitler i mean those are the words that were used i'm sure jewish listeners will be familiar with that kind of terminology uh palestinians were terrorists they were blowing up pizza parlors not that that was entirely untrue there obviously were suicide bombings in israel at various points over the years but the idea that somehow palestinians were solely defined by their violence by their actions against israel was how i grew up and how many jewish people grew up i would say that's changing although not nearly as fast as i think it should but and i've been a journalist for 20 years I uh, as I said I now live in Sydney but I've been based overseas for years I was in East Jerusalem I was in South Sudan in 2015 before I went to East Jerusalem with my partner who was working in both countries for Oxfam the um, British NGO and I guess I've, as a journalist I've written about lots of issues not just Palestine about the war in Afghanistan a lot about disaster capitalism and drug war issues I guess in a way it's often a cliche, right, to say this, but to give, not to give voice to the voiceless, but to, to report on issues that I think are not being given 
appropriate attention uh, in much of the Western press, and Palestine is one of them. That, that's a great great lead into the book. And before we do that, I'm going to mention that you had a recent article in the Sydney Morning Herald, which actually goes into your personal background mm-hmm. and beliefs in great detail. I will I will include a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, but talking about you know stories that maybe are insufficiently covered, and you know people have written about the Israel um, arms industry in the past. They've written about very specific cases of Israel's arms exports, um, but what what your book is, is something else. You sort of tie it all together and make sense of it. Um, and I want to start off actually by asking you to, to, to talk about what you mean by the term Palestine laboratory. And I, I will, I pulled out of your book when I was reading it, the phrase where you said that it was a, effectively the Palestine laboratory has become a signature Israeli selling point. That's a quote uh, for their arms industry. So can, can you talk about that? The reason I guess I called it that, and I don't think I'm the only one or the first one who necessarily used that term, but it's not particularly widely used, um, I think, although it should be, is that essentially what Israel's been doing for, I mean, I talk mostly in the book since 1967, though, of course, there was an occupation of sorts since 1948. Palestinians, of course, were not given equal rights. That was under military curfew for close to 20 years. But since 67, the occupation... Israel has designed huge amounts of tools and technologies to control Palestinians. Um, In the modern era, we're talking about, obviously, drones, surveillance, so-called smart walls, all these kinds of tools. And from the Israel perspective, very effective. I mean, Palestinians obviously resist. There is a resistance to occupation, but massively outgunned uh, by Israeli military might. And... We can obviously discuss how inverted commas effective Israeli occupation is in the long term, but certainly for the past 56 years, Israel would rightly say, and I sadly agree that they've basically won for now, that they have successfully controlled a Palestinian population with huge amounts of international support. And the tools and technologies that they use is really attractive to a lot of other countries, countries that often criticise Israel we're against the occupation, police stop building settlements. None of that stops them buying huge amounts of this equipment to repress their own people, their own dissidents or journalists or human rights workers or people they just don't like in their own borders. And the Israelis use Palestinians as essentially guinea pigs to test these weapons. Um, not always deadly weapons. It could be surveillance. It could be a drone. It could be um, facial recognition at a checkpoint in the West Bank. And then when they're promoted and sold overseas, they're said to be so-called battle-tested. And I've seen that in documentation, in marketing tools that uh, Israeli companies use. And that's really attractive to a lot of people who essentially regard Israel's occupation as, whether it's a success is obviously debated. Of course, I use that term loosely, success. Whether it's success as a marketing tool But it's certainly seen as a very appealing enough to get lots of other countries interested to buy that equipment themselves. And to the point now where, as I say in the book, as far as I can tell, there's at least 130 countries in the world that have bought some form of Israeli so-called defense equipment, which is, you know, the majority of nations on the planet. Israel's the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world for a country of a tiny population. I mean, Israel's got I guess officially around 9 million, but I would argue with the occupations that are 14 or so million people, 
it's tiny and yet it's a massive global power in the arms industry and that's because of the law because of the, in my view of the laboratory in the west bank particularly gaza and east jerusalem yeah you, in the book you use the term global sparta that stuck with me this this idea that you know for the entire world israel is this force for exporting these weapons um, I find the term Palestine laboratory both chilling and 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 just objectively so accurate, as we've mm. seen whether it is in wars with Gaza or wars assaults on Gaza, or whether it's seen with just the day to day management of checkpoints and crossings, or with the surveillance. I I, I will put into the um, in the show notes. There's a a video that was circulating at the end of last year from one of the Israeli companies selling its drones, and it it it's, it's a video showing the drone basically in the West Bank, going into a house, going to a Palestinian house. And I think it is, I don't know if that one shows the assassination. I mean, it's its literally like saying we can do this um, yes. against a population. And get away with it. And exactly. get away and, with and it. And it's against, it, it with the Palestinians being a population who have no legal rights to challenge what is being used against them, no ability to push back, no access to any accountability whatsoever. There's, there's no one speaking for them in the Knesset saying you can't do this. Um, they, they don't have that sort of accountability, which makes them absolutely guinea pigs um, for mm. testing it. I'll also put links. Um, there was an article in Times of Israel from June 2023. Um, Israel arms sales doubled in a decade, hit new record of 12.5 billion in 2022. And another one about Israel ranking 10th in the world in arms exports over the past five years. So global Sparta indeed. Um, so I, I want to dig a little bit deeper. And I, I you know, you cover this in the book, and I know you've covered this in some other podcasts, but I want to I want to dig more into this. I don't think a lot of people understand the interplay between the public sector, the IDF, the intelligence community in Israel, and the private sector. Because when we're talking about arms sales here, we're talking largely about private sector sales. But they are, I, I think, part of the the, the weave of the, they're woven in with the Israeli government. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, what Israel does, which is what the US does too in that way, is that when companies like Lockheed Martin or Rayathon, listen, our viewers will be aware of those leading US companies, they're private in a way, they have boards, they make profits, etc. But they're essentially, they're an arm of the state. I mean, they were used hugely by the US in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're used now extensively in Ukraine, making huge profits from that war there. And Israel is very similar, you have all these private companies nominally private as i said they have boards they have uh, profits or not um they're usually veterans of the idf often veterans of unit 8200 which is the intelligence arm essentially israel's nsa you know the nsa obviously is the world's biggest intelligence unit really run by the u.s government of course which was exposed by edward snowden 10 years ago but the unit 8200 is kind of the equivalent not quite as big but large and huge numbers of those people are encouraged while they're in there to, once they leave, to develop technology, surveillance tools, whatever it may be, to promote, I guess, their experience, to show off their exploits, so to speak. And those connections that they've had during those years of military service are then very important to be used by the Israeli state to promote those products globally so it's not simply a question of company x goes out into the market goes to arms fairs in paris or london or wherever these arms fair are in tel aviv as well and 
promotes these products and then they get bought by country X or country Y. I mean, that's happening, but they're regularly promoted by the Israeli government, by the Israeli state. And they're often used, as I show in the book extensively, this could be a drone, it could be a Pegasus, the you know, surveillance hacking tool, phone hacking tool. It's almost like a diplomatic carrot. That's sort of how I see it. Israel is not necessarily putting a gun to a country's head and saying, you must buy our drone. It doesn't quite work like that. But they're using it in such a way as saying, you know that you want to get the best drone in the world. You know you want to get the best surveillance tool in the world. We will sell this to you by private company X being battle tested in Palestine, incredibly effective. Israel, as I say in the book, and this, this fact just came out just before the book went to print, as far as we can tell, Israel has never really rejected one serious arms deal in the last two decades. It actually is even longer than that. Not one. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that every single Israeli private company that wants to sell something necessarily sells it. In other words, they have to obviously, in theory, Israel has a mechanism by which a body oversees what gets approved and what does not. But the facts show that everything basically gets approved to pretty much every regime on the planet. And people have often asked me, oh, who is Israel not selling to? I mean, on one level, we actually don't really know. <laughs> we actually don't know. The presumption is not North Korea, not Syria, not Iran, although Iran was massively a customer before 1979. But most countries in the world are a potential market. So these private companies are private in name only. And they, in some ways, they are providing the, the so-called credibility to the Israeli state because Israel's promoting itself, not just as a country, it's promoting itself as a nation that can, as you say, is a global sparta. This was happening before 9-11, but it massively accelerated after 9-11, right? Where Israel was said to the world, we've been doing this for decades. And in some ways, as I show in the book, I thought, and I guess I didn't articulate it as well as I think I have in the, in the book. In other words, I, I thought about this a long time before the book came out, that Israel really, so much of what the US did post 9-11 was the Israeli playbook. And that wasn't just how they behaved in terms of torture and rendition and all these kinds of things. It was also the use of private military companies to actually promote their agenda, to promote an occupation, which may have been Iraq and Afghanistan, the US's case, where you know the US was using Iraq and Afghanistan to battle test weapons. I mean, so many of the weapons and tools that the US was using in those two theatres have ended up on American streets used by American police forces. Israel's doing something similar. America obviously is the world's biggest arms dealer. It sells 40% of the world's weapons, and Israel can't compete with that and arguably never will. But the interplay between the private and public in Israel is disturbing because the occupation is a key selling point, as in the US, the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan were key selling points for the last 20 years. Yeah, no, that's a, you argue this and explain it very powerfully in the book, and I don't want to try to, to summarize it here, but what you do, you argue it very, very well in the book. I want to dig into a little bit. You you look a lot in the book at Israel's longstanding record, and longstanding, I mean, going back to like South Africa days, of of selling weapons and technology to anyone, um, and and to to bad actors, 
Um, and this has been documented in the past and there's been freedom of information um, efforts inside Israel, particularly on the South Africa case. Mm. Um, and we're talking here about the export of weapons and technology developed in the Palestine laboratory, weapons and, develop, and technology developed to control and suppress Palestinians and surveil them. Um, and 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 exported to to arguably the worst actors in the world to do the same things to their people. What I want I want you to talk about that a little bit and give some examples. I know you have a lot of this data in your head, but I also want you to sort of connect the dots here. To uh, I mean, I have to make the, the the moral the moral connection between a country that that part of its 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 governing ethos is that it's okay to use these things and how that connects to a, co a complementary government ethos which says it's okay to export them to people who are going to do the same thing hands off we're not responsible can you just tie that up together including by the way to regimes that were openly anti-semitic i mean this is something that a lot of people when the, since the book has come out have been pretty shocked about that there were regimes after 1945 that often were housing, helping Nazi war criminals, Argentina being a good example of that, and known to be anti-Semitic during the years of the dictatorship, this is decades ago now, often would torture Jews specifically because they were Jews. Israel had no issue helping, training, arming that regime. And you're right, there are so many examples, so I don't want to sort of bombard people with too many <laughs> names of countries, but the South Africa case is worth mentioning briefly. South African apartheid obviously ended in 1994, but Israel was not just a key ally of South Africa because of a defence industry. They were selling weapons and they wanted to make money. There was an ideological alignment. They very much admired each other in how each nation was treating in South Africa its black population in Israel, Palestine, the Palestinians. And they admired that. And I have in the book extensively details about how each nation admired the other, how they were proudly, I mean, even when, even at the, by the end in 19, in the early 90s, I mean, pretty much the entire world finally, finally after decades said enough, you know, we won't support this. And of course, the US and the UK were massive allies to South Africa pretty much until near the end. Israel was a friend of South Africa till the end. In fact, I have some details in the book of declassified documents that have came out that had Israeli officials kind of concerned about what a transition would look like there towards a what I guess they presumed would be a black-led government under the ANC, which obviously ended up being Mandela. And this was a very similar view, in fact, to how they thought about the transition in 1979 in Iran under the Shah. The Shah, of course, gets deposed by an Islamic, what turned out to be fundamentalist regime under, um, you know, Khomeini. And there was concern and, in fact, weird optimism that maybe they could keep selling weapons to the Iranians under an Islamic regime. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened as far as we know. Um, it didn't stop them selling weapons to, I mean, where do I begin? Uh, Myanmar for decades, uh, particularly in the last decade or so, and Myanmar obviously has committed genocide against the Rohingya Muslim population. Um, often countries that the US was engaged in a dirty war with in the 70s and 80s, so Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, nations often were committing heinous human rights abuses. Guatemala was committing genocide against its indigenous population. Israel was training 
their forces. And you have, have quotes in the book, uh, which I didn't know about until I was researching, including, and I think it was, if I recall, CBS News, you know, as mainstream as you could get uh, in the US saying around the early 80s that the Guatemalans were really looking to Israelis for advice in so-called counterinsurgency. Help us, please, Israel, fight our terrible indigenous populations. Well, that population, there was an attempted genocide against those, those people. And I think one thing that really comes up time and time again in the book, and I talk about it to an extent, but I didn't want to sort of hammer the point home, hopefully people get this, is that this is supposed to be a state that at least self-describes itself as moral. Now, obviously, every nation to some extent does that. The US obviously says, you know, it's the greatest country in the world. And okay, we can question whether that's true. Every country has myths about its existence, about its birth. Mostly they're all bullshit, of course, but every nation has that. But Israel, particularly born in the ashes of the Holocaust, uh, a people, many, you know, six million or so were killed, uh, a Jewish population that was just struggling beyond belief that within 15 or 10 or 15 years of its birth was selling weapons to some of the worst regimes on the planet which has continued to you know now i mean that to me as someone jewish is just the most horrific legacy and i have to say unlike the u.s with all its problems and faults there is far more transparency within the U.S. about where weapons have gone, particularly since World War II. In the Israeli system, it's remarkable how few whistleblowers there actually have been. Very, very few. Classified documents often stay that way. Yes, I have in the book a lot of declassified documents, but there is so much we still don't know. Uh, there's been, I give a few examples in the in the book of, I open the book with an example of a, a man who lives in Israel now who sounds sounds like a sort of a, a lefty Jew, but uh, grew up in Chile and Pinochet comes in in 73. And of course, the, um, the Americans supported Pinochet during Kissinger, as did Israel. And they're still really unclear what support did Israel provide. It was definitely weapons and support that we know. But all those details are unclear. And this man, along with some other survivors of that regime, were trying through the Israeli courts to get some kind of explanation release the documents please stonewalling stonewalling and that to me i think speaks to how little we know we know enough of the facts but there's so much we still don't know and i think that really is a sense that israel in one way is unbelievably arrogant but also actually i see israel as a profoundly insecure state and both can be true right you can be profoundly arrogant but also weirdly unsure about your past and unsure about your future and i actually haven't met that many countries where that feeling exists obviously there are some states that are very insecure of course afghanistan honduras places i visited for work but israel has this real sense of i think still i don't know if it's what's the what's the term for it it's a it's a existential well, so, yes, I mean, also there's existential questions around Israel's future, which we'll get to. That's for, for sure. But there is still something they don't want to acknowledge the history. I'm talking about not even talking about ancient history. I'm talking about history in 48. I mean, so many documents from 48, Israel refuses to release. I mean, it's just that to me is only a sign of insecurity. I don't see it in any other way. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I mean, I, I wanted, there's so much I want to dig into here and we don't have unlimited amount of time because I want to be respectful. It's getting towards midnight your time. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about surveillance tech, which is the hot issue today. Drones and surveillance tech are really the two hot issues. Mm. I want to talk about surveillance and what I have, what I and other people have talked about and you talk about as the panopticon, right? Building out technology that basically lets a state see and control the privacy of everybody or, or eliminate privacy of everybody. Mm. Can you talk about Israel and the role of, you know, you have, again, you talked about the, the technology, the, the crossover between the unit in the IDF 8200, where people basically um, specialize in building this tech, and then they come out and they found companies and they, they build it out for commercial purposes, and monetize it, and then it's turned into a tool of transactional diplomacy by the Israeli government. Talk about that industry which has gotten so much attention today, not just because of the, the killing of a, an American a, a Saudi resident, um, Jamal Khashoggi, who was, who was tapped by, by, by Pegasus, but, but others too. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and it, the impact of this, of, I wanna say, it, Israel is not the only country developing this tech, but Israel is clearly the leading edge. Um, yes. it, it feels like you, know, you have to make an effort when you're writing about the subject to not make it about Israel. I always, I'm always struck when members of Congress write letters of concern about surveillance tech and manage to not mention Israel as they cite three different Israeli companies. So oh, can, you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, as a lot of listeners, of course, will be aware of Pegasus, so I don't want to talk too much about that. But one of the things that's really frustrated me about the coverage of Pegasus in the last years, and there's been some good reporting from the Washington Post, The Guardian, and some French outlets about Pegasus. They got a leak of all these phone numbers and it was clear that Pegasus was just insanely ubiquitous in so many countries. We still don't really know how many countries Pegasus is used in. I'm going to say in the, you know, under a hundred, but I don't, no one really knows for sure. I think in the book, maybe I've got a figure of 70. I'm happy to be corrected, but around that it's a lot. Um, and of course, there's huge numbers of other companies that are also doing exactly the same kind of thing and they've got less bad press. And in fact, they're the companies that may well succeed into the future because NSO Group is in financially bad straits. They're having trouble raising money. They might collapse tomorrow. Who knows? I say this in the book. But even if they do collapse, none of this problem changes. I mean, this is one of the key points that really concerns me about looking at what Israel has done with surveillance. And again, other countries are doing it too. But Israel certainly the top in the world, so to speak, or the second or third in the US maybe is number one, but in terms of its prominent products, Israel is number one, Pegasus amongst others. There's no regulation. There's no regulation of this industry. It is literally like the Wild West. So a lot of countries say, yes, we're very concerned about surveillance. The EU is very concerned, as the EU loves to be very concerned about a lot of things, but they all want to use it. They all want to use this technology. Now, it doesn't mean, therefore, you can't regulate them. That's like saying years ago, people were desperate to use chemical weapons or nuclear weapons. And, of course, there's regulation, although it's far from perfect. One of the things that I think Israel has done very successfully from its perspective, and this comes out through either increasing mass use of facial recognition, biometric data gathering in particularly Hebron and other areas in Palestine itself, is that that example of trying to get complete surveillance and information control over all occupied people, so roughly 5 million between um, in the occupied territories, 
is kind of like to an extent, although in a different way, what China is doing to its citizens. Obviously, China is a massively larger country and China is probably, I'd say now, I think it's pretty inarguable, probably has the most sophisticated surveillance of its citizens in the world. I think it's probably uncontroversial to say that. But in terms of the surveillance technology that a country is selling, Israel sells far more of that technology than China does. China is starting to do that as well. And that's, I talk about this in the book, right, that I'm really concerned about this sort of double standard. If China sells the technology, we're very concerned in the West. We should stop it. It's outrageous. How dare they do that? And they write they shouldn't do it. And it's a repressive state, obviously. But when Israel does it, it's mostly crickets. And when the attention is, as I talk about in the book, and there's been some developments since the book came out, the Biden administration has sanctioned NSO Group, has in fact just two weeks ago sanctioned some more Israeli, well, Israeli-aligned surveillance company so on the face of it that seems great then of course you realize that a the fbi still uses this technology a and b i see this very much as a way i see the biden administration's sanctioning of israeli companies not only because they're concerned about u.s officials in africa being surveilled by pegasus which did happen i think it was in uganda if i remember correctly because they, they're concerned about American companies coming second. This, to me, is a commercial issue. They basically don't want American companies to not have full access to develop these tools and sell them as widely as Ameri- as Israeli tools. I see this as, as an economic battle rather than a, as a moral or, a, or a, in any other battle. But, I mean, one of the, yeah, the surveillance of Palestinians, of course, inevitably, is now happening to Israeli Jews as well. I mean, it's almost inevitable. The occupation always will come home. That you've had in the last, I mean, the protesting against Netanyahu, of course, um, which, well, obviously they've been large this year, but of course they happened when he was prime minister the last time, if people will remember that. And there was already signs of Pegasus being used against Israeli Jewish citizens there is evidence that there's been mass surveillance now against Israeli citizens. And I'm not comparing the two situations. Israeli Jews, comparatively to Palestinians, have far less to be concerned about in terms of their day-to-day existence. But again, when you have mass surveillance, it's inevitable, right, that it's going to eventually come back to bite you as the one who promotes, sells it, and develops it. And I'm really concerned that the model of Israeli surveillance of Palestine is something that many other states do look to with admiration. I mean, that to me is, is the fear here, that it's almost the, and we can talk about India or other examples where I cannot think of many other countries that have sold more surveillance tech than Israel, and certainly since 9-11 around the world, and it's made it seem kind of inevitable. I mean, I say this in the book, I think, that Mexico is addicted to to Israeli surveillance technology. I mean, a country wouldn't particularly think about maybe, I mean, as you know, as addicted to this sort of thing. Right-wing governments, the current left-wing government, they're obsessed with it. And who does it go after? Not criminals or terrorists, although potentially those people too. It's the critics, the dissidents, the human rights activists, all those kinds of people. And I think many of those countries look to what Israel is doing in Palestine and either turn a blind eye and does, I think, impact how they vote in the UN, sometimes, though not always. 
that sort of transactional friendship. And I think also just finally, I do really see the surveillance tech particularly as kind of an Israeli insurance policy that, yes, it's possible in years to come these nations will deeply criticise Israel and may even sanction it one day. It's possible. But Israel, I think, feels rightly from its perspective now how likely are these states so reliant on our technology to really turn against us? And I would say in the short to medium term, that's a probably pretty good bet from their perspective, sadly. Yeah, no, that's, it's really chilling. I, I, I do want to just, for our listeners, bring it back. I mean, Israel, one of the arguments Israel makes when you know, people defending Israel for whatever it's doing is saying you're holding it to a different standard. This is just, mm-hmm. this is just you know, economics, you know, it's technology, yep. everyone's doing this. Why shouldn't Israel be allowed to do it? The, this goes back to the, the, the thesis of the book, which is the Palestine Laboratory. It's not merely a question of whether one thinks it is good or bad that Israel is exporting this kind of tech, which I think a lot of us see is very problematic for a whole mm-hmm. range of reasons that they're exporting to the mm-hmm. world. They are, it, they're exporting this tech that they have developed battle tests and are selling as such on the backs of who have no ability to challenge it. They still have a captive market for testing mm. this, a captive, a captive laboratory. Um, and and that's, that's where it intersects with this book. This isn't about saying, well, everyone else can sell, sell surveillance tech, but Israel shouldn't because of whatever that, that, that this is Absolutely about not. This is how you're developing it. And that's, I, I think, you know, come back to that over and over and over that mm. that Israel has created this industry out of occupation. Um, and and that's, that's what's at issue here. I do want you to talk about India. You mentioned India and, you know, Modi was just recently in Washington and it was celebrated. And mm. um, there's been a couple of articles that I would recommend to people. I would particularly recommend the article from the spring 2023 issue of Jewish Currents, the Hindu nationalists using the pro-Israel playbook. That's the title. Great piece. And then mm. there is a previous piece from 2019, also in Jewish Currents, God's Guns and Country, Trade in Weapons and Ultranationalist Ideas is Driving and Expanding India-Israel Alliance. This is something that that some of us have been paying attention to for years and watching with growing concern, including the romance that this has led to politically in Washington. Um, I want you to talk about this, particularly um, through the lens of Israel's arms exports um, to India. So traditionally, India and Israel were not particularly good friends during the Cold War. There were some relations, but it was relatively cold, so to speak. It wasn't particularly close. It really accelerated in twenty after 2014 when Modi becomes prime minister. He has a deeply disturbing background. If people don't know, they should definitely Google that. He is, you know, accused credibly of overseeing a, a massive pogrom in the early 2000s in the area where he was um, in charge. And since 2014, he's really accelerating the move to creating a Hindu fundamentalist ethno-state. India is now the biggest country in the world, the biggest population, the biggest self-described democracy. It's got roughly 1.45 billion people, overtook China this year because China's birth rate is very low and India's birth rate is generally much higher. And really the the romance that you talked about with uh, Modi in Washington, he was in Australia recently, it was equally nauseating, I can assure you, is because it's not China. I mean, on one level, it's as simple as that. On the deeper level, 
the romance between Netanyahu and Modi and between the BJP, which is Modi's Hindu fundamentalist party and elements of Likud and other far-right groups in Israel, is not just a defence relationship, although Israel buy, so India buys huge amounts of Israeli weapons, weapons themselves, surveillance tech, et cetera. It's also, I see it as an ideological alignment that they both admire each other's. And I see it very much as the in the modern age is similar to apartheid South Africa and Israel. You know, Modi and his officials, and I quote these people in the book, often talk about how much they admire Israel's war on terror. They admire how Israel deals with so-called terrorism. They aren't particularly fond of Palestinians, not particularly fond of Muslims, frankly, either. They deeply admire what Israel is doing in the West Bank, which obviously is bringing in Jewish settlers to colonize uh, Palestinian territory. And what they're trying to do in Kashmir, which is a Muslim majority area of India, is to bring in growing numbers of Hindus from the southern part of India to literally settle the land. Now, it's not going to be exactly the same as what Israel is doing in the West Bank, but it's remarkably similar. And to me, I think the danger of that is, A, so much of the West has its head in the sand about where India appears to be heading. It's not inevitable what's going to happen there, but when you have 200 million Muslims, and I just saw this week, there are unbelievably disturbing scenes of pogroms against Muslims, Muslim businesses being burned to the ground. And this is not sort of some bad apples, rogue actors in India doing terrible things. These are people often who are backed and supported by elements of the Indian state. I mean, this is a, a state that we should be speaking out about, being critical of. And that piece you mentioned in Jewish Currents is very interesting and people can read that in their own time, the recent piece. But there is definitely a growing playbook that Hindu nationalists and fundamentalists in the US and elsewhere are using, which is similar to the Israeli Zionist playbook, which is how do you criticize us, you're anti-Semitic, or in the case of India, you're you know anti-Hindu, right? And I think that kind of when I see it as an ethno-nationalist love-in, India and Israel being the most prominent, but there are a range of other countries that are also doing it. And I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is that to make people aware that it's a warning, that there is a growing surge in ethno-nationalist nations, nations that are proudly ethno-nationalist, Israel and India being the most obvious. There's obviously Hungary, there's growing states across the EU that would like to be ethno-nationalist. There's growing far-right groups that deeply admire Israel, even though they're traditionally you know, Nazi-aligned or don't like Jews very much, because they really admire this Sparta Israel. As you said at the beginning, Lara, they really admire that mentality. doesn't mean these groups particularly like Jews per se. They like the way that Israel treats what they view as an unwanted population. And finally, and they get away with it. It's the impunity which they love. You know, none of this human rights talk or you know UN bodies, none of that, none of that irrelevance in their worldview. And in some ways, it's something I think that really I think threatens the possibility of some kind of democracy in many countries. Because if someone like a Donald Trump wins in your country next year or someone like him, and most of the Republican candidates apart from him are frankly pretty terrifying on these kinds of issues, 
I think there is definitely going to be a huge acceleration of an attempt. I'm not saying America is about to become an ethno state, you know, in January 2025, but there is certainly a, a, a real growing interest in far right groups that are very powerful, aligned with the Republicans, but also Trump particularly, to accelerate those kind of things in the US as well, which is why the Republican Party has become not just in love with Israel, but has sort of gone, I mean, even I mean, the Democrats are bad enough on Israel, as we know, in general, but the Republicans have sort of gone all in. And I think that is an ideological alignment. I do see that, a belief what Israel is doing is something that we'd like to do here in the US for Christians. Yeah, I think we actually have had people say that on the far right in the US. Indeed. All right, I have two more questions for you. I'm taking a lot of your time. I want yes, to ask yes. you to talk briefly about um, the recent statistic that came up. This is from June, um, uh, June 14, 2023, Al Monitor. I have an article, Arab states make up 24% of Israel's 2022 arms exports, including drones. Uh, we're talking here mostly about the Abraham Accord countries. Um, talk about this. Well, the Abraham Accords was always an arms deal. I thought that at the time, and I guess these figures prove that that it wasn't, I mean, listeners to this podcast will be savvy enough to know this, but it wasn't about this great desire for Israel to make friends with the Arab world and America was going to be a handmaiden to that. It was an arms deal. And in fact, it wasn't just Israeli arms, it was also American weapons that a lot of these states wanted too, that they weren't getting. And the figures, as you said, from 2022 showed that, that the Arab states, and we're talking particularly here about uh, Morocco, Bahrain. I mean, Saudi is not officially in the Abraham Accords, but certainly there is, as listeners will be aware, growing moves to build some kind of quasi agreement, bring them into the Accords. Whether that happens, of course, hard to be looking to a crystal ball, but I'm not so convinced that will in the short term. But nonetheless, they've been buying huge amounts of Israeli repressive technology to repress their own people. So when Israel talks about being, well, the only democracy in the Middle East, well, firstly, it's bollocks because it's not. And secondly, you're selling repressive technology to make sure that Arab states stay repressive. So firstly, look in the mirror. I mean, obviously, Israel knows that, but I think it needs to be called out. And I think what you will find in years to come, almost certainly, is a growing, though the percentage of Arab states buying that tech will increase inevitably, A, and B, it's worth noting that apart from many of the Arab elites who are definitely benefiting from these arrangements, either making money or, you know, traveling to Israel for holidays or all those kind of, you know, interpersonal relations, much of the Arab populations, like in Egypt and Jordan for decades, even after those peace deals with Israel, don't like Israel. And there's obviously a range of reasons for that. Some are legitimate some is anti-Semitism. It's a range of reasons. I'm alive to all that. But this doesn't make you friends with the Arab world. It makes you friends with Arab dictators and Arab autocrats. So nice try, Abraham Accords. Thanks for that. All right. I want to ask you one final question, which is you mentioned Um, so in your book, you conclude with the obviously accurate observation that so far Israel faces no obstacles or consequences for treatment of Palestinians, which includes using Palestine as a weapons and surveillance tech laboratory. But you also observe that this is changing, could change, may change. Uh, talk about that. 
Look, I think in the short to medium term, and again, it's always difficult to look into the crystal ball, but in the short to medium term, I don't, when I say short to medium term, I guess in the coming decade-ish, I guess a lot of it depends. Of course, the caveat is always if the current Israeli government or roughly the current government stays in place, not that I think particularly if Benny Gantz or Lapid come into power tomorrow, much is going to change. Some things would, but I mean, the occupation, as listeners will be aware, wasn't that different last year where they were in charge. I mean, let's face it, it's more brazen now and more, more, um, they're more arguably honest about what they want to do. If that government stays in power, this might timeline might accelerate. But to me, in the short to medium term, I don't see huge amounts of pressure on Israel to change. I don't because I don't see where it's going to come from. I don't see it coming from the Arab world, in Arab leadership, I should say. Uh, the EU is mostly toothless and, of course, is the biggest trading partner of Israel and is pretty keen to maintain that. The US is always a bit of a wild card. If a Republican's in power for, you know, 8, 12 years, then, frankly, God help us all. If it's a Democrat maybe possibly is a bit more room for pressure or maneuvering. I'm not saying with Biden, but maybe someone else. Don't ask me who that would be. I have no idea. You tell me being an American. But I think I say that because I think in the short to medium term, Israel feels rather comfortable. What I say in the book, though, is that there is a growing, not just BDS, which I think is growing, although far too slowly in my view, but there is, I think, a growing sense that many investment firms are increasingly talking about within their own circles i'm not talking about left-wingers pressuring them well that's happening too that at some point who knows when as is starting to happen around climate change where a lot of big investment firms will not invest in companies that are working on fossil fuels palestine will become that toxic issue at some point as well that we're not going to invest in companies that are building the settlements that are operating in the settlements now that's happening on a small scale I give some details of that in the book. It's not happening on a massive scale. Israel does not feel economically concerned about that. And I don't think also, I mean, and to me, so I guess the hope also is that I do think that Israel's Achilles heel to some extent could be the global Jewish diaspora. It could be. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, APAC is a company suddenly wake up and you know realize how awful it's been. But I think there is, as I've often been saying, there's like an insurgency. I really see it that way in the Jewish community. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Now, politically, it's not having huge amounts of impact yet. Yet, I think it will. I think in the Democratic Party, there is some room for movement and pressure. And I do think there's more, how do I put this? I think there is more... um, It's going to be more and more difficult for even the senior Democratic leadership who are mostly in their 70s and 80s, to defend or justify a government that is moving, in my view, in Israel towards full-blown theocracy. I mean, that's their vision. It's pretty obvious. And I don't think in the short to medium term, the arms industry is really going to be that affected by that in Israel. I know people talk about the startup nation might be impacted. Like I see all these stories in the American media and I kind of laugh saying, you do know what the startup nation principally means, right? It doesn't only mean this, but it's principally about the defence sector. And even if some people leave, and some are, and you read you know, every second day in Haaretz, there's some story, right, about you know liberal Israeli Jews looking for a, a you know a second passport. 
even if there's some move for those people to leave, I just don't see the defence industry massively suffering in the short term. I don't. Because the hope to me is Jewish population putting pressure, BDS and investment firms that also I think might wake up. And I mean, I guess there's also some hope, maybe, maybe naively, that the ICC might get off its ass as well, but we can live in hope. Yeah, we can. I think it's it's important to, to look at these these ideas of what is possible and not get too completely bogged down in, in, in defeatism here. I agree. But I will say, looking at the amount of energy and effort being put into preventing them, being put in from from people who are defenders of of, of the, the status quo, defenders of Israel, um, defenders of the Israeli government, of its policies, the amount of energy being put into trying to shut down the yeah. the, the seeds of the trends you're describing um, suggests that they're at least a little bit worried. Um, Definitely. So if that maybe is a source for hope. All right. I've, I've taken far longer than far more of your time than I promised I would. I want to thank you, Anthony, so much for sharing your thank time you, and your analysis. And I want to thank you for writing this book, which I really do hope people will read. It is absolutely worth the time. It is quite riveting. Um, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast. I'll be posting a whole lot and also other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you stay subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of these podcasts on YouTube. So with that, I'm going to sign off. I'm Laura Friedman. Until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Bye.